Well, before we open up the Word of God together, there's just a few things I, I, I wanted to mention. First of all, needed to make you aware of this, okay? This is pretty awesome. Today is the 57th anniversary of ACC as a church. 57 years. So, yeah. Some people 57 years ago who had a vision of reaching the northwest suburbs for Christ and being a part of that uh, formed a church. They met for the very first time on a Sunday morning 57 years ago this weekend. And so the legacy they left for us is amazing. And so we just recognize the anniversary as a way of thanking God for his faithfulness, right? And for years of gospel ministry. And we're so glad for that. I think it's pretty cool that we actually have four people here this morning who've been here all 57 years. They were here the first Sunday and they're here now. Is that impressive? Most of us can't handle coming two weeks in a row, right? right? Like we come two weeks in a row and we're like, yes, right? Okay, 57 years they've been coming, but they probably missed a few Sundays, but I got to recognize them real quick, okay? So I'm going to embarrass them and I'm going to make them stand, but Lois Armstrong, you need to stand up, and Rosie Bauman, you need to stand up, and Dale and Ann Hugo, stand up right there. Let's hear it for them. We thank God for you four, for over the years, giving, volunteering, being a part of this church, and we're, we're grateful for you, and it's fun to celebrate this anniversary together. Another smaller anniversary, but an anniversary nonetheless. Denise, as our worship leader, just celebrated one year at ACC. So, Denise. So, for one, one fifty-seventh of ACC history, Denise has been there for us, okay? Way to go, Denise. Yeah, do it. Do it. <laughs> that sounded like a threat, Denise. <laughs> okay. Uh, wanted to also give you a quick update. You're probably aware um, that we announced a while back that we're in the process of changing the name of our church. Uh, Arlington Countryside Church hasn't always been called that. Over the years, especially in the early years, there was a couple of different name changes. It's been the name of our church for quite a while. But in order to find a name that better uh, describes who we are now, um, we're, we're going to be changing the name. I wanted to give you the update to let you know that we're way far along in the process. We're near the end of the process, and we anticipate publicly announcing the new name of our church on Sunday, April 30th. So a couple of weeks after Easter on April 30th is when we'll do that. But we've made good progress and we'll be ready on that Sunday. So anyway, just in case you were wondering, hey, whatever happened to that? Yes, her name is changing. And no, we're not going to tell you what it is yet. And uh, we will be telling you soon. And we're excited about that. But just that update. Okay, well, let's pray. And uh, then we'll open God's word together. Lord God, we thank you for 57 years of faithful biblical ministry that this church has brought to this area. Father, we thank you for the men and women who've gone before us, who sacrificially gave and volunteered like crazy and remained faithful to your word 
and Lord, had a heart for others. And God, that's our legacy. And that's the church we are today. And Lord, we pray you would continue to bless our church, continue to help us to be effective in reaching people for Christ and for building up believers in the faith. And uh, Lord, help each of us to play the role you've given us to be faithful and to continue moving forward for another 57 years. Uh, Lord, we um, want to pray now that as we open your word, that you give us hearts that are really open and teachable. Uh, that, Father, your word would have its way in our lives, that as a result of what we learned this morning, we might be a little bit more like Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right. Well, I want to take care of some unfinished business from last week. Uh, hopefully, you were here last week, or you were with us online, or if neither one of those things were true last Sunday, hopefully you listened to the podcast or watched on YouTube, right? That you got up the speed on last week's sermon. Last week, we were in John chapter 3, and we took time to look at an incredible conversation that Jesus had with a man by the name of Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus in his day was a mover and a shaker. He was highly powerful. He was very influential. He was a key leader. He was one of the Pharisees, one of the religious leaders of Jesus' day, who also happened to be Jesus' primary antagonist. But, but, but uh, Nicodemus was a Pharisee, very well-educated, and, and he was also a member of the Sanhedrin. Uh, and it was comparable to like our U.S. Supreme Court. He was like a leader among leaders. He was the ruling class from a wealthy, influential family. And so Nicodemus, this man of tremendous stature, comes to Jesus secretly at night. Because you see, just shortly before this conversation, he had been in Jerusalem for the Passover, and he had heard Jesus teach publicly, and he was blown away. He had watched Jesus perform miracles. And of course, that blew him away. And so his curiosity was piqued. He had a lot of questions. He was yearning to find out what is Jesus all about? Why is Jesus here? And so he comes to Jesus to interact with him. And that's what we looked at last week. The gist of what Jesus says to Nicodemus is, Nicodemus, it's not about you trying harder. If you want a connection with God, if you truly want to be alive spiritually, it's not about you getting more religious. It's not about you becoming more moral. It's about you need a fresh start. You need to start all over again, not just turn over a new leaf, but you need a fresh start. You need to be born again. That's a work of God in your heart that you can't do yourself. You need to be born again. Great story. Super interesting to look at. But here's the thing. John, in writing this gospel, left us hanging. Because he never says how Nicodemus responds. He never explicitly says if Nicodemus heeded the words of Christ and, and placed his faith in him and became born again, or if he walked away and, and took no action. We, we really don't know. But there are some clues. And I wanted to look, because there's a couple passages of Scripture, because there's two other times Nicodemus is mentioned in the Gospel of John. John chapter 3, the conversation he had with Jesus, and then no other words of Nicodemus are recorded, but his name is mentioned two other times. And so check this out. I think this is kind of interesting. 
Um, in John 7, Jesus' public teaching has been stirring up controversy. And he's really getting on the nerves of the Pharisees. They feel threatened by him. And so they're thinking about arresting him. And so we pick it up in verse 50. It says, Then Nicodemus, the leader who had met with Jesus earlier, spoke up. Is it legal to convict a man before he is given a hearing? And so we see that uh, Nicodemus is like, in one sense, rising to be an advocate for Jesus, like standing up for him and saying, hey guys, let's not be rash. Let's not move too quick. Are we really treating this guy fairly? And so obviously Nicodemus has some kind of inclination towards Jesus, right? Some level of uh, support or empathy towards him. Now the other place that Nicodemus is mentioned is immediately after the death of of Christ. Right when Christ died, we pick it up in John 19. Look what it says. Afterward, and by afterwards means after Jesus died, afterward Jesus or Joseph of Arimathea, who had been a secret disciple of Jesus, parenthetically because he feared the Jewish leaders, asked Pilate for permission to take down Jesus's body. When Pilate gave permission, Joseph came and took the body away. With him came Nicodemus, the man who had come to Jesus at night. He brought about 75 pounds of perfumed ointment made from myrrh and aloes. Following Jewish burial custom, they wrapped Jesus' body with the spices in long sheets of linen cloth. And so what we see is that Nicodemus was one of the two men who literally took Jesus' body down off the cross. And Nicodemus and Joseph took him to the tomb and they embalmed his body. They, they prepared his body with spices and wrapping it in cloth for a typical Jewish burial. And so Nicodemus was there at the death of Christ. Here's the thing I want you to see. The thing I want us to notice from these clues is that not every follower of Christ is obvious. Not every follower of Christ is readily apparent. Isn't that a fascinating phrase where John records that Joseph of Arimathea was a secret disciple of Jesus and he was secret because he was fearful. He was afraid of retaliation. He was afraid of being ostracized. He was afraid of ruining his own reputation. And so he was a follower. He was a disciple, but a secret one because he was afraid. And so it brings us to the realization that not every follower of Jesus is obvious. Now think about this. If someone had asked my opinion, here's what I would have said. Uh, Joseph couldn't have really been a real Christian because real Christians are bold. Real Christians aren't afraid of others. Real quick Christians stand up and he would have been counted publicly as a follower of Jesus. So now nah, he's probably not really a Christian because a real quick Christian wouldn't act like that. Now, is that John's take on the situation? Interestingly enough, it's not. And John says, oh no, he was a believer, a secret believer, because he was afraid. I find that so interesting that that's possible, that that's true. But think about this. You know what they call 
the last person in line following Jesus? You know what they call the last person in line following Jesus? They call him a follower of Jesus. <laughs> so whether you're at the front of the line or back of the line, you can be a follower of Jesus. And so it's important for us not to mistake the fact that, or not forget the fact that there can be mature followers of Christ and immature followers of Christ. There can be bold followers of Christ and there can be timid and, and, and frightened followers of Christ. That there can be believers who live life with no regrets and when they face Christ, they will be greatly rewarded. And there are believers who on judgment day will have a lot of regrets and Christ will still embrace them and they'll still enter eternity, but they'll do so with a lack of reward. And looking back, they'll have wished that they had made di different decisions in this life. But nevertheless, they were saved by the grace of Jesus Christ and they were truly a believer. And so keep that in mind, will you? It's important to understand that Jesus fulfilled a prophecy in Isaiah 42, verse 3. Isaiah prophesied about the coming Messiah. And this is what he said because Matthew records it. And in Matthew's gospel, he says Jesus fulfilled this prophecy. That This prophecy is actually talking about Jesus. Matthew 12, verse 20, which is a quote of Isaiah 42, 3, says of Jesus, he will not crush the weakest reed. He will not crush the weakest reed or put out the flickering candle. He will not crush the weakest reed or put out a flickering candle. So you see, in our judgment, we could say, ah, a weak reed, that's not really a Christian. A candle that's just flickering and not burning bright and strong, ah, it's not really a Christian. It's not true. And in fact, Jesus understands people who struggle with fearfulness and struggle with anxiety. And Jesus understands people who make bad decisions in life on how to live for him. And folks, I'll tell you right now, I encourage all of us to be bold. I encourage all of us to not fear the response of those around us in following Jesus. That's the ideal. That's the aspiration we should all have. But the truth is, some of us are never going to step up the way we should because of our personalities, because of our struggles with anxiety, because of dysfunction in our life, that, that it doesn't allow us to be this bold, outgoing, obvious disciple. It's a fact. And so the so what is this. The so what of this truth is simply this. I want to encourage you, don't rush the judgment. Don't rush the judgment of others. You might look at their life and think, ah, I don't see much fruit there. And that's true. There probably isn't much fruit. You may say, well, they should, if they're really a Christian, they should really be bolder. Well, that's probably true too. But not every follower is obvious. And so I, I encourage you to thrive as a believer. Not everyone will. Only God knows the human heart, you see. Only God knows the human heart. And so we think we can make judgments from externals. And, and, and generally speaking, you can tell a, a, a tree by its fruit, right? But with that said, there are exceptions. So 
Let's not rush to judgment. Now, okay, now we're in the new passage of Scripture. We're, we're looking at the new stuff here. Uh, John 3, beginning at verse 22. And what we're looking at here is the last will and testimony of John the Baptist. These are the last words ever recorded of John the Baptist. And um, a little bit later after this, he's martyred for his faith. King Herod has him uh, beheaded. But this is John's final tribute to the Messiah. So look what he had to say. Uh, then Jesus and his disciples left Jerusalem and went into the Judean countryside. Jesus spent some time with them there, baptizing people. At this time, John the Baptist was baptizing at Enon near Salem because there was plenty of water there and people kept coming to him for baptism. This was before John was thrown in the prison. Now a debate broke out between John's disciples and a certain Jew over ceremonial cleansing. So John's disciples came to him and said, Rabbi, the man you met on the other side of the Jordan River, the one you identified as the Messiah, is also baptizing people, and everybody is going to him instead of coming to us. John replied, no one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. You yourselves know how plainly I told you, I am not the Messiah. I am only here to prepare the way for him. It is the bridegroom who marries the bride, and the bridegroom's friend is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. Therefore, I am filled with joy at his success. He must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. He has come from above and is greater than anyone else. We are of earth, and we speak of earthly things, but he has come from heaven and is greater than anyone else. He testifies about what he has seen and heard, but how few believe what he tells them. Anyone who accepts his testimony can affirm that God is true, for he is sent by God. He speaks God's words, for God gives him the Spirit without limit. The Father loves his Son and has put everything into his hands. And anyone who believes in God's Son has eternal life. Anyone who doesn't obey the Son will never experience eternal life, but remains under God's angry judgment. I struggled with sermon prep this past week. I struggled big time. Sometimes preparing a sermon just flows and it's so smooth and so easy and so enjoyable. And then there's other weeks where preparing a sermon is like trudging through knee-deep mud. And this was a knee-deep mud kind of week. I took a two-hour nap in the middle, okay? I went for a long walk. I prayed. And I, I, was, I wanted to, like, talk through the thought progression here of, of the passage we just read. And, and I couldn't see it. I couldn't find it. I couldn't do it. And all I had in mind was these two points, these two observations I had and nothing else. And I was praying to God saying, God, help me to figure this out. And God's answer was, you big dummy. I gave you two points already. How many other points do you need? The, those two things that keep coming to the forefront of your brain, that's what I want you to share. Don't worry about expositing the passage of Scripture. So it's a slightly unorthodox sermon, okay? The handling of the text, I'm not thoroughly going through it line by line and, and doing the thought progression. Instead, what I'm doing is trusting that this is the way God led this week. There's just two basic observations from a couple of different phrases here that I think God wants us to focus on as a congregation, okay? So, here they are. 
First thought I want you to have is this, that learning to follow Jesus happens best through relationships. Relational ministry is where it's at. It's always been where it's at. And where this comes is from a phrase in verse 22. Go back to verse 22 and look what it says. It says, Then Jesus and his disciples left Jerusalem and went to the Judean countryside. And then look at this next phrase. Jesus spent some time with them there. Jesus spent time with his disciples. That that was always the approach of Jesus. It was about relationship, that there was no substitute for time, that a key to developing disciples is hang out, live life together, learn from each other, and move forward. But relationship was essential. Now, churches are always looking for the magic bullet that will produce strong Christians. And so pastors are always into looking on the horizon for the next great curriculum that they can give their church or the next big flashy sermon series that they can plan that will draw people in and build people up. Or it's about finding the right worship songs and the right worship music. Or it's about starting a new ministry. But it's a secret like silver bullet that will like build everybody up. And while curriculum, sermon series, worship songs, ministries, programs, they can all be good, that's not ultimately and primarily what builds disciples. What does is living in community. It's about being in relationship with other people who are heading in the same direction as you. Here's what I think throws us off in our culture. Um, uh, a follower of Christ in the New Testament is called a disciple, right? A disciple of Jesus. And a disciple, disciple means learner. And so when we think of a disciple, when we think of a learner in our culture, you know what we typically think of? We think of a learner as somebody listening to a lecture and taking copious notes. Or reading a book and having a real high level of retention and comprehension. That's what we think of when we think of learner. But in the day of Christ, in the culture of the New Testament, you know what that word disciple really meant? The, the, the better English equivalent isn't learner, but it's apprentice. Now, apprentice has a whole different vibe to it, doesn't it? Because what do you think of when you think of an apprentice? Folks, an apprentice means experiential learning. <laughs> that it's not through lectures per se, it's not through books per se, but you learn by hanging out with somebody and watching them and learning from them and working alongside of them and developing the skill sets and the knowledge that they have. Like if you were an apprentice carpenter, you don't know anything about carpentry, but what would happen? You'd hang out with a master craftsman, hang out with a master carpenter, who would slowly over time, over time, no substitute for time, would show you skill after skill. You'd pick up this, you'd pick up that, and pretty soon you find yourself pretty proficient at carpentry, right? And it wasn't from watching videos or reading a book or attending lectures, but it was doing it, doing it hanging out with somebody who knew how to do it better than you. 
And that's the relational dynamic in the church. That's a relational dynamic that's absolutely essential to you developing as a follower of Christ, that you need to spend time with other Christians, with people who are heading in the same direction as you, so that you can learn how to be a husband, how to be a wife, how to be single, that you learn how to be a mom or a dad or a grandparent, that you learn how to be a good employee or you learn how to be a kind neighbor, how to be a good friend. How how do you pick those things up? How do you know how to have a heart of devotion to God? How do you know how to worship? How do you know how to read your Bible? Yes, you can learn some of those things to a certain extent through books and through sermons, but ultimately it's by doing life with other people through trial and error and learning from each other and doing that in the context of community. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 27 says, All you together are Christ's body, and each of you are a part of it. And so God, when we cross the line of faith and become a Christian, God puts us in the church, puts us in a faith community, and it's our job then to connect with that community. And so the so what here that I want to tell you this morning is this. The so what in light of this truth is you need to be intentional to engage. You need to be intentional to engage in relationship, to engage in the faith community. Now there's a lot of ways you can do this. We always encourage people that that it's really important that you become part of a small group, whether it's a growth group or a quad or a triad, but but you need to be getting together with other Christians so you can pray together, learn from each other, and grow together. You can join a group that you just informally start on your own. Maybe you can just develop a friendship with another Christian or two, or even maybe take the bold step of asking somebody to be your spiritual mentor and get together with you once a month or something like that to talk through life. But the, the whole idea is the dynamic of relationship and being engaged in that. So friends, I want to encourage you, don't neglect this area. Don't try living the Christian life as a lone ranger. And don't be satisfied thinking an hour in this room on Sunday mornings is going to cut it. Now, an hour in this room is better than nothing, <laughs> But if you add to an hour in this room on Sunday mornings with relationships with other believers, that's where you're going to see advancement in your Christian life. So I encourage you to engage intentionally, be intentional about being part of the faith community. That was the first thing that was at the forefront of my mind from this passage. Here's the second thing I want you to grab this morning. That being an effective witness for Christ means impressing people with Jesus, not with yourself. John modeled this for us. Being an effective witness means impressing people with Jesus, not with yourself. Now, people should appreciate you. Hopefully, people appreciate you. They recognize you as being kind or generous or helpful. But it's not about gaining the admiration of others, right? But it's being the kind of people God has called us to be so that we could point people to Jesus, say, well, that's the difference Christ has made in my life, or I'm this way because that's the way God has helped me grow to be. I wasn't always this way. 
In this passage of Scripture in John 3, the, the, a shift is taking place, a transition is taking place where for a number of months now, John the Baptist has been the man. After 400 years of silence, John broke onto the scene. There was a word from God that hadn't been heard in a long time, and crowds were flocking to John. But now Jesus was kicking off his public ministry, and as he did, the crowds were migrating from John to Jesus. And some of John's followers came and said, hey, John, look what's happening. That guy there is taking away your attention. He's getting the spotlight off of you. And John's response was, that's exactly what's supposed to happen. I told you, I'm not the man. He's the man. I'm not the Messiah. He's the Messiah. So this shift that's taking place is appropriate. That's what should be happening. And so John understood his role. John the Baptist understood his role. He wasn't the man. He was just pointing to the man. And the illustration he uses is that of a best man in a wedding. Can you imagine attending a wedding where the best man is fuming and fussing because no one's looking at him and no one's paying attention to him and not a single person has brought him a gift? You say, well, that's silly. Why? Because the best man knows his role. It's not his day, right? It's not his day. It's the groom's day. And so he's just happy if the groom's happy. He points to the groom. He's there to support the groom. That's the illustration John uses. He goes, that's my role. I'm not, I'm not the groom. I'm just the best man at this wedding. And he culminates his attitude, uh, articulating his attitude, in what he says in John 3, verse 30. And folks, this is a great life slogan, a great motto for life for each of us, where he says, he must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. It's all about mindset, right? And you're not trying to impress people with yourself, but impressing people with Jesus, that you don't need the admiration. It's about giving Jesus his proper place. It's about being humble. It's about being humble, not needing the spotlight. Now, a lot of people struggle with the concept of humility. And you know why? People struggle with the concept of humility because so many people think being humble means you have a bad self-image, that you have a bad self-esteem. Like, oh, I'm worthless. I'm not a good person. I don't do anything very well. I really don't have any gifts or talents. And, you know, and it's this person who just has no self-confidence and, and, and they're, they just got a really bad self-esteem. Folks, that's not humility. That's not humility at all. A humble person can be very confident. A humble person can acknowledge, yeah, I've got skills. Yeah, I've got some gifts. Yeah, I can be a blessing to others. Uh, those things can coexist because humility is this. I love this definition, this explanation. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And that's an important distinction to make. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less, of putting other people before yourself, of putting your God before yourself. And it makes all the difference in how you end up living your life. My experience is a lot of people are really bad at taking a compliment. And I think Christians are really, really bad at taking compliments because we're afraid that if we receive a compliment, that'll fill us with pride or we'll come across like a proudful person, you know? And it's important. We all need affirmation from time to time. And it's important that we recognize, yeah, God has made you wonderful. 
and that God has given you gifts by which you can bless others. And so let me give you a tip on how to receive a compliment as a Christian, okay? When someone compliments you for something, what you say is, thank you. Just say thank you. Don't deflect it. Don't deflect the compliment by saying, oh, no, it really wasn't me, or oh, it was really easy, or I didn't have anything to do anyway, or we deflect compliments. Instead, just say, embrace it, take it, receive it, and just say, thanks. And then, as God gives opportunity, you could say, God helps me to be that way. Or I didn't used to be that way, but Jesus has really developed that character quality in my life or whatever, right? And, and, and so you can receive it, say thank you, and then point people to Jesus as that's why you're that way. So what's the so what? The so what here is this. In light of this truth, projecting perfection does more harm than good. If your idea of being a witness for Jesus is you've got to have your act together and that you're basically perfect, more or less. <laughs> you do far more harm than good because people, first of all, if you're projecting that kind of image, they're going to say, well, I'm not that kind of person. I could never be as good as you. I could never be perfect. Religion must not be for me. God must not be for me. I'm just not cut out for that. And you end up discouraging a person from coming to God if you try to project yourself as having your act together. But what's even more likely is they've already pegged you as a hypocrite because they see you as trying to come across like you got your act together and you're perfect when they know you're not. They know you're not, but they see you acting like you are. And so that's why it's important that we keep it real, right? That we just keep it real. You embrace your weaknesses. You admit your sin. You admit your dysfunction. You admit your addictions. You admit those things. And yet, there's a side of you that's good. God is working in your life. You're not the same person you were a year ago or 10 years ago. And, and so you're moving forward. But in all of that, it's important to just keep it real and not feel this pressure like we've always got to have our act together. Let's pray. Father God, place within each of our hearts a desire to be like John the Baptist. That, Father, it would be our life motto that we must decrease and he must increase. Lord, may our lives always be used to point people to your son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.